Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So there's this rancher uh, living in Texas who decided to buy up uh, 10 large ranches that already existed with its own name and own tradition and gather them together, combine them into one massive kind of mega ranch. And a friend of his said, that's fantastic. That's going to be amazing. Uh, But what are you going to call this this new mega ranch of yours? And he said, oh, well, it's going to be called the the Circle Q, Rambling Brook, Double Bar, Broken Circle, Crooked Creek, Golden Horseshoe, Lazy Bee, Bent Arrow, Sleepy T, Triple O Ranch. And the guy said, wow, that's okay. That's, That's going to be amazing. I bet you have a lot of cattle. He said, no, not really. Most, most of them can't survive the branding. <laughs> Listen, the character at the center of this story that you just heard Adam read from John's Gospel, Thomas, never survived the branding. Jesus, the risen one, shows up on the night of Resurrection Sunday. He shows up in the locked room where the disciples were sheltering in place, and, but Thomas was not there with them. When Thomas finally arrives, they said to him, we've seen the Lord, he is alive, but Thomas refused to believe in that news. He refused to believe that he was risen until he could see for himself From that moment forward through the ages, throughout Christian history, he's now been known by his unfortunate nickname, Doubting Thomas. And honestly, that's quite tragic because to be honest with you, I believe that Thomas may be one of my heroes in the gospel stories. Really. I mean, Thomas demonstrates something that may, if we have the ears to hear it, rescue somebody from a life that they assume is a life without faith and without spiritual connectedness, without life and resurrection. Because see, right here, right now, we're in the middle of this series called Resurrection. And what I've been saying is that we have this audacious claim in the church that it's possible for every human being to experience the true aliveness of resurrection in Christ. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the fullest. That's resurrection, but what we've been saying these many weeks is that if you are really going to experience the true aliveness of resurrection, you got to realize that resurrection isn't just some one-time event, but it's an all-the-time invitation to a way of life. And for some, the the cold, hard reality, the tragic reality is this. They may never experience the full aliveness of resurrection because they have been told a lie. Maybe you have been told this lie. 
And the lie is that in order to believe, you can't have any doubt. Have you ever heard that spoken to you? Have you ever heard that overspoken to someone else? I think that we all know someone who might right this minute be in the faith if they made a little room for doubt. You and I both know people, and we are people, who perhaps were presented a version of the faith that was so simplistic, so easy, so predictable, that it didn't take into account the cold, hard realities of mystery in the universe. Some have been given a version of the Bible that is so simplistic that it doesn't take into account historical context, doesn't take into account modern scientific discoveries, doesn't take into account societal evolution over time. And in the process, if you're a person who has some genuine, honest doubts about some things, but those doubts are not welcomed in the faith, it's possible to think that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And Thomas today is inviting you to take a walk and a talk with him. Yeah, yeah. Because on the night that Jesus demonstrated that he was alive. I mean, he had risen that morning from the dead. The Father had raised him to new life. But that evening, he shows up and reveals his aliveness to the disciples. And Thomas isn't there. We don't know why he's not there. It's not spoken. It's not told why he's not in the room. He's just not. And they begin to tell him about Jesus and the resurrection. This is how we hear it. But Thomas who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now what's fascinating about that verse that we've read again and again and again over the years is the verb that is used in that verse is a curious verb. I mean, the disciples told him that he is alive. The, verse, the, the verb in Greek is this verb. It's elegon. Elegon means they told him that he was alive but it comes from a perspective in tense and time the verb actually doesn't simply mean they told him the verb has a tense to it that conveys a kind of ongoing action a perpetual never-ending kind of activity so literally what the verb is saying in the text is they kept on telling him they kept on and on and on telling him all week long. They kept raising the story before him. They kept telling him he's alive, he's alive, but he would not believe it. And right there is one of the great truths of our faith. The, the reality is you can be told your whole life, but until you own it, it's not yours. And parents, I just want to speak to parents who have children or teenagers right now, you got to tell it. And you got to tell it again and again and again. You have to keep on, like the verb shows, again and again and again, revealing this truth from the time they are old enough to even hear your voice and be comforted by the trust that they hear in it. Tell them again and again, because there will come a time in the hearing of this perpetual good news that they own it. But you got to make room for some doubt. you got to make room at some point, especially when they become later teens and early 20s. you got to give them room to stretch, 
to question, to question everything you ever told them so that in hearing the good news, it's not just a faith that they've inherited, but it's a faith that they now own. So keep on like the disciples telling again and again and again, he's alive, there is truth in him, just come and see, right? And eventually they will see. So Thomas replies to this perpetual this perpetual good news that's being rendered to him. And he says it this way. He said, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. The most powerful word in that verse is the one at the very end. I will not believe. In Greek, the, the word is me pastuso. Mepistuso is a, is a word that means, yes, I will not believe, but it comes from a root that shares its root with a noun, pistis, which means faith. It literally means that, that Thomas is saying, I cannot put my faith into something based only on what you're telling me. i got to see it, touch it, feel that it is real. Is that sounding familiar to you, or perhaps does it sound like the sentiment of someone you know and love? Because the truth, beloved sisters and brothers, is this Thomas had faith to place somewhere. In the Gospels, he was among the most faithful, constantly committing to go with Jesus to the very end. He had faith to place somewhere, but he wanted to make sure that he places it into a place and into a person that is reliable and can be trusted. So for him, doubt is not some obstacle to his faith. For Thomas, doubt is a pathway to believing. Doubt is not a lack of faith. Doubt is an act of faith. Would you just let that sentence settle with you for a moment and and let it just seep into the soul Doubt is not a lack of faith, but doubt is an act of faith. It is something that can be a pathway to believing if we give it a little bit of room. In fact, it's this way through all of the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, there's this amazing moment where Jesus, the resurrected one, says to his disciples, meet me on the mountain in Galilee. And so they rendezvous on the mountain, and there's this obscure verse, this mysterious verse that emerges in Matthew's gospel. Listen to how it's described. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I mean, just leave that there and look at that verse for a moment. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. You know what the verse doesn't say? It doesn't say they saw him, they worshipped him, and... The ones who didn't believe doubted. And it doesn't say, hey, they saw him and they worshipped him. And the ones who were less spiritual and less theologically mature and educated doubted. And and it doesn't say, hey, they saw him, they worshipped him, and the ones who doubted were kicked off the mountain, right? It says they worshipped. They saw him, they worshipped, and some doubted. That worship can involve both seeing Believing and doubting. See, doubt is not a lack of faith, but doubt is an act of faith. Just check Mark's gospel. See, we're over here in John, but Matthew echoes it, and Mark does as well. In Mark's gospel, there's this moment where 
this dad, this father comes to Jesus and says, my son uh, suffers from epilepsy and I, I want you to heal him. And Jesus says, do you believe that he can be healed? Do you have this belief? And he said the most amazing, beautiful expression of faith. He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. In other words, do I, yeah, I believe. I mean, I've got a lot of belief. Everything in me believes, but there is a part of me that I've seen too much, you see. I've, I've been to too many places, and I've had too many wounds, and so I, yeah, I believe. And I, think, I even think about our black neighbors during these most recent weeks and the news that we're talking about and what has kind of captivated our consciousness now. The reality is, yeah, I believe. I wonder if they say to themselves, I believe that there can be change and justice. I believe that there can be new legislation and maybe new leadership that allows for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. But I've seen too much. I've seen again and again and again and again too much. So I believe, but God, help thou my unbelief. See, doubt is not a lack of faith, but doubt is an act of faith. Or, 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 check, or check even in, in uh, Luke's gospel. There's this amazing revelation, right, that happens. Jesus is raised from the dead, and he reveals his hands, his feet, his side. He reveals it to his disciples in Luke's gospel. And, and when he does, there's this really interesting line that Luke tells us. It says, while in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, as if to say, Luke is suggesting that you cannot extract disbelief from the, from the joy and wonder sandwich of faith. It's right there in the heart of it all, which makes it more nutritious, makes it more delicious when you actually embrace it because doubt is not a lack of faith. Doubt is an act of faith. That's what Thomas is saying. And, and maybe another way that we could say it is this. Doubt is faith's twin. Yeah. Doubt is faith's twin. You know that in this story, in your, in your, your version of, of the gospel, it may say, you know, and Thomas, who was called the twin. Or in other translations, it says, and Thomas Didymus was there. Didymus is a word that means twin. He was called a twin, and we don't know who his twin was. I mean, was he literally a twin? Did he have like a twin sister who maybe wasn't on the scene because they didn't allow women? Or maybe that's not the case because Jesus always welcomed women. Or maybe he had a twin brother but did not believe and did not follow Jesus. Or maybe he wasn't even a, a biological twin at all. Maybe he just looked like one of the other disciples, right? And, and so it was a nickname fact is nobody knows and that's part of the beauty of it because maybe Luke is trying to do this maybe Luke is saying you know Thomas is called the twin because within Thomas and within you there is both the twins of belief and doubt and it's all part of faith yeah 
So, so here's what happens. So they tell him again and again and again, he's risen. And what I love about what the disciples did is even in the space of his unbelieving, even in the, the space of his doubting, they made room for him. They didn't reject him. They didn't judge or condemn him. They continued to embrace Thomas in the midst of his true doubting. And I think that it is time for the church of Jesus Christ to recapture that kind of courage again. To be the place that is sanctuary, a safe place for those who actually have doubts to come. The church must be a safe place for doubting believers and for believing doubters. Would you just let that settle in for just a moment as well? Because maybe you are listening to my voice and either you or someone you love is either a doubting believer, I mean, they believe, but they have some doubts, or they are a a believing doubter. I mean, they really have a lot of doubts, but there's a part of them that wants to believe. The church must be a place that we create a safe zone to work out your salvation in fear and trembling without the condemnation of having not yet arrived there. Even in the preaching, the Sunday school community, the classes, what we do with our students and even with our children, in every context of this church, we have to remain diligent and vigilant at creating a safe space so that if you or someone you love feels like a spiritual outcast because you have some honest doubts about some things, or if you have a particular worldview or an outlook on life or a particular way that you are oriented into living and you feel like you're the only one, you need a place here to be able to work out your doubts and salvation and fear and trembling. Can you just think for just a moment, if you are a member of JCBC, and you know somebody who would never come to church here because they feel like they have got, they've got this, this whole bag of doubts with them. And they got all this baggage of questions that nobody has ever allowed them to ask out loud. Can you imagine how beautiful it would be if one day after trying this place out, they said to you in some intimate moment of confession, you know what, I don't know what it is. There's just something about your church. I feel safe there. I don't know, and I'm not perfect, I'm not finished, we're all imperfect and unfinished, but I just kind of feel safe there, like it's okay to bring my mind and my heart and all of the questions that kind of orbit around in my interior world because your church allows that. Could anything be more beautiful than that? The fact is, we must become a place where it is safe to bring your doubts. Jesus, a week after Easter Sunday, showed up again. Jesus came and this time Thomas was in the room and we pick up the story in John's gospel. A week later his disciples again were in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands reach out your hand and put it in my side do not doubt but believe and we're familiar with this part of the story and it's an amazing moment and what makes it amazing for me what makes it most amazing for me is that Jesus did not despise his doubt he welcomed it and gave him something to do with it 
He gave him, in the words of, of, of Killer Mike, he gave him a plan and a plot in order to organize and strategize and mobilize his way toward faith. Here, give me your hand and reach it into my side. If the church could recognize that those who are on the outside of faith looking in simply need something to do with their doubt. Imagine the pathways that we could create that give them with patience and with perseverance an opportunity to mobilize their doubt and their faith so that they work it out on their way. He said, give me your hand. And he gave him something to do. I am amazed at the stories that come out of like how many, at times, men who go on a mission trip who perhaps were on the edge of faith, they go through on this mission trip, maybe from our church, and they come back with this energized newness of faith. Not because they had it all worked out before they went, but because they went and had something to do with their faith. They believed. I think of choir members who have come and joined our choir in the past before even joining the church, and some before even solidifying their faith in Christ. But there's something about singing with these folks. There's something about singing these truths and doing something about their faith actually mobilized their doubt and their belief into true faith. I'm thinking about even Matt Janofsky. Matt typically runs one of our cameras and works actively in our production ministry. But he did that kind of thing for years before he even confessed and became a Christian. Before he was even a Christian, he mobilized some action so that even in his technically his unbelieving, his action drew him to belief. See, the, the truth, beloved, is that you don't have to believe to belong here. But if you come and find through action and activity and mobilization, if you find some way to actually feel as if, you know, I kind of belong here, then you won't belong here long before you actually begin to believe. You don't have to believe to belong, but if you belong for long, you will believe. It reminds me of what Richard Rohr says. He's like, he's like we don't think our way into new ways of behaving. That's not what we do. We behave our way into new ways of thinking. And that's what Jesus gives him the opportunity to do. Give me your hand, Thomas, and reach it out and touch the hole in my hand and the, the scar in my side. And the most provocative demonstration of this may be in Caravaggio's The Incredulity of St. Thomas. Here's a portrait or a, of that amazing painting. I just want you to study that painting for just a moment and realize this, this captures the entire essence of this moment in which doubt is not a lack of faith, but doubt is an act of faith. Jesus reaches forward, grabs his hand, and pulls it in. Or there is some controversy about the portrait, actually. Is he pulling his hand in or is he pushing it away, saying you don't need to touch to believe? The Bible actually never even says that Thomas touched his side. The Bible says Jesus invited him to touch his side. That's why I believe that in the portrait, I believe he's pulling him in and saying, touch here in my wound. And I want you to pay close attention to what's happening with Thomas's hand. With one hand, he's plunged deep into the woundedness of Jesus in his side. But look where his other hand is placed. His other hand is placed in his own side as if 
Caravaggio is saying that in Thomas and maybe in all of us, it is in touching the wound of Jesus that we recognize our own woundedness. It is in our own scars, because we all have scars. It's in our own woundedness and scarring that we are most connected to the God who was willing to take on scars to help us find faith. It's always baffled me when I think about the resurrection of Jesus. For years, it's always baffled me why it is that if the Father had the capacity to raise him to new life, to raise Jesus from the dead, why in the world would he have left five gaping wounds in his body, two in his hands and two in his feet and one in his side? Why would he leave five gaping wounds? Why couldn't he have given him a restored whole body unless... The wounds are the places where we hold on. The wounds are for places for folks like Thomas and for you and for me to grasp onto in the midst of a world of doubt when I can't believe a thing that I hear. I can feel his aliveness because it's in the woundedness of him that my own woundedness is healed. The church of Jesus Christ, and I'm calling our church, Johns Creek Baptist, we have to become more comfortable becoming vulnerable with our own wounds. We have to become more vulnerable with the places that we have borne scars because there is a hurting world filled with people who want to believe but who have healthy and reasonable doubt and all they need is to touch the woundedness of the body of Christ to recognize there is room in the wound. There is room for them here among us with the body who recognizes we are all broken and we are all imperfect. Will you become vulnerable enough with somebody to show not your perfection, but your scars. Fred Craddock tells this story where he, God rest his soul, when he was living, he told a story of raising his two daughters, and he and his wife and his two daughters, when they were very young, went out on a drive through the country one day, and it was a beautiful spring day, kind of like we've had a couple of days this past week. And the sun was out, so they decided to put their top down on the convertible and enjoy the air. They're driving through the country when the two girls in the back seat notice on the side of the road in a ditch was a tiny kitten. I mean, just a baby kitten, all alone, completely abandoned. And they said, Daddy, you've got to pull over. There was a kitten back there. I'm not going to pull over. We're on our way somewhere. No, but Daddy, you've got to pull over because she's all alone and she's going to get hurt. She's all by herself. And they went on and on. We're not pulling over. We're not pulling over. He said, we're out to have a good time. Now, everybody, close your mouths. Let's just move on. <laughs> After a while of awkward silence, his wife whispers over to him and says, you know, you're going to have to pull over, right? I mean, you can't. So he turns around. He goes back to where they had seen the kitten. He goes down into this ditch looking for this thing. And it's a scrawny, skinny, all matted and dirty little kitten all by herself. So he reaches down to try to, to get it. And even in her small frame, even in her weakness, she attacks his hand. 
and she scratches him all up, and he recoils. Now he's even more angry, so he, he gets the cat by the, by the rough of the neck and takes the cat into the car, puts it in the back seat, tells the girls, don't, don't touch it. It's probably got leprosy or something on it. Just leave it alone. They got it home. They cleaned her. They gave her what seems like gallons of milk. And over the course of many days and several weeks, the kitten was back to normal. She was growing, and they had created a little bed for the kitten, the girls did, right in front of Dad's chair. So every time he got up and sat down, he had to navigate around it. He felt like, I'm losing my house to this stray cat. Well, he wasn't a cat person, but it was growing on him. So in time, the mother and the daughters went out to run an errand one day. And while he was there alone in the house with the cat, he feels something brush up against his leg, and he looks down, and it's the cat. And this kitten is gentle, and it's kind of calm, and he, he looks around to make sure that nobody sees him caring for the cat. And he reaches down, and he presents his hand to pick her up. Only this time, she didn't scratch at him. She didn't attack him. She didn't resist him. She didn't fight him. Instead, he says, she looked for a moment at the scars that were on my hand, and she gently licked my scars, and everything was changed. I don't know if maybe you are someone who needs to become more vulnerable and show the scars you have to those who are doubting and who need something to hold on to or if maybe you yourself are in need of grasping on to something real to some woundedness in the body to make you feel normalized like you are not alone that you are not the only one with doubts with fears with wounds I think about Thomas and how the gospel writer says that he was the twin. And a moment ago, I told you maybe he's called the twin because doubt and belief are twins within all of us. But maybe Thomas is called the twin because his twin is you. That you know exactly how he thinks and how he feels. Because you yourself have embodied the same kind of mixture of belief and doubt and you just need to reach and touch something real well maybe today that's what you need to do to reach to reach forward to allow him to pull you in and give you something real to feel like life and resurrection and aliveness can return to your life so maybe you need to pray this kind of prayer God, I want to believe more than you could possibly imagine. Everything in me wants to believe that you're present with me. I want to believe that I have value and my neighbor has value. And I want to believe that there can be reconciliation between me and my neighbor, between me and my family. I want to believe that your aliveness brings resurrection to all of us. But I got to be honest with you. I just don't know. Are you willing to take me, Lord, um, in the strange mixture that I am, belief and doubt? Because if so, here I am. 
If so, take me. I confess that I'm at the end of me and I cannot work out all of these doubts and struggles my own, on my own. But I pray that you will receive me. And if you will, I will follow. In Jesus' name, amen. My friend, if you prayed that prayer, even silently in your heart and you meant it with all of your heart, Christ himself will embrace you and is already embracing you. And you yourself will wake up to the awareness that you are welcome with him. If that's something that you prayed today, we want to know about it. I will, you need to tell somebody about what's going on within you. And if you can't find anybody, I want to know. Tell me. Email me. I've got an email address. It's sking at jcbc.org. I want you to tell me the prayer that you prayed today and allow me to join you in praying about your journey toward belief. Now, wherever it is that you go from this moment, this moment of prayer and worship and study and, and faith, may Christ go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step forward at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly may Christ go in you, transforming you, from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm.